Well, last weekend marked the 100th anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic. Did you notice that in the news? A hundred years since the so-called unsinkable ship sank to the bottom of the ocean on its maiden journey, killing over 1,500 people. hundred years. hundred years. That's not all that long, really. Um, Sue and I have relatives that have lived longer than that. A hundred years. And yet so much has changed. When the Titanic set sail, uh, here in Australia, the Sydney Harbour Bridge did not exist. They hadn't even made a start on it. When the Titanic set sail, the Australian Parliament was meeting in Melbourne because Canberra didn't even exist. Going further afield, when the Titanic set off, the tallest structure in the entire world was the Eiffel Tower. Nowadays, there are apartment buildings on the Gold Coast higher than the Eiffel Tower. When the Titanic set off, there was a grand total of only 144 miles of sealed road in America. While we're in America, its flag only had 45 stars because neither Arizona, Oklahoma, New Mexico, Hawaii or Alaska had even been admitted to the Union back then. In fact, in James Cameron's film about the Titanic, you know, the one that's just been released in 3D, there's a classic scene in the movie uh, where you can see a map of the world on the wall in the ship's radio room and the map is historically completely wrong because the map has countries on it that didn't even exist back then Meanwhile, it doesn't show some of the countries that did exist back then, but have long since disappeared since then. All in all, it is testimony to just how things change, whether it's fashion, whether it's technology, whether it's unsinkable ships, whether it's an entire city, whether it's an entire country. Things that can seem really big and impressive and long-lasting In the end, they turn out to be very fleeting, not nearly as permanent as they seem. But there is one thing that's permanent. There is one thing that will never disappear. There is one thing that will never become obsolete, the kingdom of God. Because the things to do with God, the things to do with God's rule and his dominion, the things to do with God's people, that sort of thing, those sorts of things last forever. And that, in a nutshell, is what today's passage from the Bible is all about. It's all about how the kingdoms of man are fleeting, kingdom of God, it's forever. And Isaiah wants to stress that to us at this stage in his book because, if you've been here earlier on in the year, hopefully you remember, that Isaiah is a book all about God's purposes and plans for this world. And in the first 12 chapters that we've already spent time in earlier this year, we've seen some important things about that plan. We've seen that it's in God's plan to punish Judah for her sin. He's going to punish Judah by using the Assyrian Empire to crush and conquer her. But then after that punishment, out of that punishment, He is promised that a remnant will survive and out of that remnant, a new people, a new kingdom of God will arise and that kingdom will be ruled over by a king of dazzling proportions. We've been told that a king is on his way who is full of grace and justice and righteousness and of course we've discovered this side of the cross that that king 
Isaiah didn't know it, but that king turns out to be Jesus. But back to Isaiah, and here, as we rejoin the book, what Isaiah wants to do now is overlay everything we've already seen about this coming king and the coming king. He wants to overlay it all with a realisation that this new kingdom of God that he's, that he's been talking about, this new kingdom that that dazzling king is going to rule over, he wants us to know that that's a kingdom that will last forever, beyond all others. And today he wants to show us that by telling us about God's judgment of the world. The way it works is that Isaiah basically gives us a general pattern of how God's judgment of the world will be like, and then he applies that pattern to specific country after country after country. Let me show you what I mean by firstly considering the general pattern, the sort of template which we're introduced to in the reading that we just heard as an oracle to Babylon. Chapter 13, verse 1, an oracle concerning Babylon that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw. Now, the word oracle there can also be translated burden. That's actually what the King James Bible has, burden. Ominous sounding word, isn't it? A burden concerning Babylon. We're being told to brace ourselves with a mess for a message that is going to weigh heavy on us. Brace yourself for a message that will concern you and trouble you. If you are not, if you are not disturbed by what you are about to hear, you're not listening closely enough. Although at first glance you'd be excused for thinking it's got nothing to do with us because verse 1 says it's an oracle concerning Babylon. Hands up all the Babylonians. Didn't think so. Great. We're off the hook. Um, perhaps not quite. The word used for Babylon there in verse 1 is in fact the word Babel. And suddenly, you see, an oracle about Babel, that takes our mind back to that tower that mankind built or tried to build back in Genesis 11. Do you remember that? Uh, humanity was really going off the rails. They thought they were so clever that they decided to build a tower so as to storm the very gates of heaven. And so God scattered humanity throughout all the earth and he confused their speech into different languages. And back in Genesis, we were told that as a vivid picture of human arrogance. And ever since Genesis 11, the very mention of Babel in the Bible, it almost becomes a slogan. It becomes a symbol of human pride. And so what we have here in verse 1 is an, is an oracle concerning pride. Here is an ominous word concerning how God intends to deal with human arrogance and self-importance. Here is an ominous word about what God intends to do with people who think that they are so full of themselves that they can ignore him, that they can somehow live independently of him, that they can sit in their lounge chairs and have discussions about whether the God of the universe even exists. Here's a word about the coming of God's judgment. Verse 2. Raise a banner on a bare hilltop. Shout to them, beckon to them, to enter the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my holy ones. I have summoned my warriors to carry out my wrath, those who rejoice in my triumph. Now, there's a vivid picture growing here. God is gathering a vast army, right, to deliver his wrath. He's gathering his forces, and it is deliberately vague because it wants to sort of disorientate us, overwhelm us. 
Um, who are these warriors? Are they human soldiers? Are they perhaps even heavenly beings? We're not told clearly who God is gathering. He more wants to stress the fear and the panic that will be generated by their gathering. In verse 4, God repeatedly says, listen, do you hear them? Do you hear them getting together? Do you hear this? Listen, can you hear the sound of just how many there are? God is gathering a massive, overwhelming force to utterly crush human pride out of existence. And this mounting tension about the coming of God's judgment, it culminates in a description of the sheer terror that will occur when it finally does arrive. Look at verse 8, for example. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Because of this, all hands will go limp, every man's heart will melt, terror will seize them, pain and anguish will grip them, they'll writhe like a woman in labour, they will look aghast at each other. Now Isaiah is, in this poetic language, he's trying to capture how mind-numbingly frightening It is to be face-to-face with God's anger. And so he's getting us to imagine people expressing fear in all these different ways. Verse 6, they're wailing. Verse 7, they're fainting. Verse 8, they're writhing. In other words, they're they're wriggling and thrashing about in terror. Verse 8 again, they're looking aghast at each other. It doesn't let up because by the time you get to verse 10, God's judgment is taking on even cosmic proportions. The very fabric of creation is starting to give way. The stars of heaven in their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. Verse 13, therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of his burning anger. Friends, God wants you to know, he truly wants you to know that you do not want him to be angry with you because the God of all the universe can inflict more terror than you can possibly imagine. And come time, he will. On those who don't think that they need to acknowledge him. To those who don't think that they need to obey him. To those who don't think they need to accept his help. It's coming. Man, I hope that's not you. But Isaiah is moving on because he's not so much interested in individual people here. He's actually got a mindset of entire nations. And so what now happens in Isaiah is that after using the symbol of Babel to describe the general pattern of God's judgment, the fact that it'll, uh, that it's coming and that it's going to generate incredible terror, he now applies that pattern to specific nation, one after the, af- one after the other after the other. And he describes the sorrow that is going to come on them as God pours out his judgment on them. And so if you just skim through the chapters after chapter 13 in your Bible, you'll probably start to see subheadings in the text where the translators have put little subheadings in and all the different nations that existed around the time of Isaiah start to get named. The first cab off the rank is Assyria about the middle of chapter 14, Assyria gets top billing because at the time of Isaiah, Assyria was the big superpower of the day. 
Assyria was unmatched in its wealth and its military muscle. Assyria at the time of Isaiah was intimidatingly massive. And in chapter 14, God says that he's planned for Assyria to be unceremoniously crushed. No matter how powerful she appears, no matter how permanent and invincible she appeared to be, God has purposed his judgment to fall in Assyria. And in the space of four verses, the great Assyria empire is just dismissed. From Assyria, Isaiah then moves around all the smaller surrounding nations. In chapter 14, he heads out west to the, uh, to the Philistines. In chapter 15, it's east over to Moab. In chapter 17, it's up to Damascus in the north, down south to Ethiopia or Cush in the south. In chapter 19, he swings over to Egypt. In chapter 21, it's Babylon's turn, this time the real Babylon of the day. Uh, but each time it's the same. He's just applying that pattern. Judgment is coming. It's going to happen to you, nation. Nations will fall and suffer great sorrow as God pours out his judgment on those who fail to acknowledge him. And at the time of Isaiah, this was a really important lesson for Judah to get into her head. Because you see, at the time of Isaiah, Judah was very much stuck in the middle of all these other more powerful nations. They were caught in the middle of competing countries more powerful than them. And lots of the countries that are named over these chapters, they are countries that were threatening Judah and trying to get Judah to enter alliances and treaties with them. And over the next few weeks, we're going to discover some of the specific instances behind those treaties. But here, Isaiah is just wanting Judah to get a reality check on all this. He's wanting Judah to see that in the end, security doesn't come from a from an alliance with Assyria. Protection is not found in a a treaty with um, Egypt. Safety is not going to come from making a deal with Babylon because all those countries, they're just going to come and go. No, no, if if you're after long-lasting safety, if you want eternal security, if you want eternal protection, Isaiah wants Judah to know that that only occurs in the kingdom of God. And so what happens is that the way this all works is to, by the time you get to chapter 24, Isaiah abruptly swings out of sorrow into singing. What he does is he suddenly jumps out of the kingdoms of man and into the kingdom of God and singing starts up in the middle of chapter 24. Verse 16, from the ends of the earth we hear singing, glory to the righteous one. And then after chapter 24, verse 16, the singing just keeps going on and going on. Chapter 25, they're singing. Chapter 26, they're singing. Chapter 27, you'll never guess, they're singing. Singing all about the triumph of God's kingdom. Singing things like that verse that's on the front of your bulletin. That comes out of chapter 25, verse 9. In the day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him. Not Assyria, not Babylon, not Egypt. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Now, you're starting to get a feel of how this fits together. In many ways, I know that this is a ridiculously long section to deal with 
today. I know that we've covered a heap of chapters with just sort of the wave of my hand. And if you haven't read them yourself, go back and read them. But I want to do it all in one hit because, you see, it's all very much connected. God's judgment against human pride is coming. God is going to bring down those who fail to acknowledge him and it will be terrifying and it's not just individuals, it's entire countries. And he spells it out in general terms using the symbol of Babel to start with and then he applies it over and over and over and over again to Egypt, to Moab, to Babylon, to Assyria. And the repetition of it all over and over, the the relentlessness of it all, it's driving home the lesson that no human kingdom is going to escape this. No human endeavour is exempt from this. It doesn't matter if you're Assyria. It doesn't matter if you're Egypt. It doesn't matter if you're Australia. It doesn't matter if you're America. It doesn't matter if you're China. It doesn't matter if you're the Commonwealth Bank. Doesn't matter if you're McDonald's. Doesn't matter if you're Microsoft. It doesn't, it just doesn't matter. The stuff of men is going to go. And all that will be left is the kingdom of God. And all that will be left are people in that kingdom singing, celebrating. It's a big section, I know. Silly to try and do it all in one hit today. But I'm doing it in one hit because in the end it's a pretty clear lesson. Put your confidence in God's kingdom. You know the one that's going to last forever? You know the one that's eternal? Build your life on that one. Live for that one. It's a pretty good word for all of us to hear. Not just Judah back at the time of Isaiah. In fact, for you and I, having just celebrated Easter, this is a lesson that ought to come to us with an even greater force because Easter was it not. That's all about how the kingdom of God has in fact been firmly established through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ such that the gates of hell cannot even withstand against it. Jesus Christ, who has been appointed as that dazzling king that Isaiah has spoken about earlier on in the year. Uh, Jesus Christ has conquered death. In fact, more than that, through his death, resurrection and ascension, he has reserved a place for us in that eternal kingdom. We don't deserve it, but by God's great love and mercy for us, Jesus has safeguarded a place for his followers in his kingdom. And the New Testament repeatedly tells us that that's a place that will never spoil. It will never fade. It will never perish. It is in a kingdom that will last forever. I started out this morning by mentioning the sinking of the Titanic. Uh, Let me finish with what is supposedly a true story from it. So many stories come out of the Titanic, you're never quite sure. Supposedly a true one. It's about a frightened woman who was sitting in the lifeboat waiting to get lowered as the boat was sinking and suddenly she remembered something that she desperately needed to get from her room. Uh, Begging for permission, she just kept begging and begging and so they finally said, you've got three minutes to get to your room, get it and get back or, or we go without you. So the woman ran through the deck, which was already starting to slope at a dangerous angle. She raced through the uh, gambling room, ignoring all the money 
and the gambling trip, uh, chips that were now floating around in ankle deep water. She got to her room and she pushed aside the diamond rings and she ignored the expensive jewellery on, on the desk and she reached into her shelf above her bed and grabbed three oranges. And with three oranges, she ran back to the lifeboat. Now, that's supposedly a true story. And if it is, it's a beauty for showing how there are some moments in life, some realisations in life that just transform the way you look at things and the things that you value. Because half an hour ago, that woman would not have dreamed of choosing three oranges instead of money or diamonds or poker chips. And yet, as the very boat she's on is sinking faster with every passing minute, now the nutritional value of three oranges was suddenly the most important thing she owned. Because some realisations in life change everything. And in today's section of Isaiah, God wants us to realise. He actually just wants us to open our eyes and get straight. The kingdoms of man are temporary. Kingdom of God, that's forever. And that changes how you view the world. Because sometimes, suddenly, some of the things that you think are important, they don't turn out to be that important at all. Whereas other stuff that you tended to ignore, that may actually turn out to be the most important thing in your week. Maybe it's time to resurrect those family devotion times, don't you think? Maybe it's time to get serious again about reading your Bible. Maybe tackling that sin that you know is really starting to entangle you. Maybe it's time to reconnect to that growth group that you've been getting slack about. Maybe you're listening to this talk on the internet and you need to reconnect to church. Maybe you need to reevaluate how much money you are spending on stuff that will just not last. Maybe we need to be exactly like that woman on the Titanic and we need to start pushing past a whole lot of things, a whole lot of pastimes, a whole lot of hobbies, a whole lot of stuff that we used to think were really important but they're just not. Kingdom of man, temporary. Kingdom of God, that's permanent. Let's live for that one. I'll pray. Father, this is a really big section of your word. And it's a scary section in parts, but we thank you for that central lesson that it is the things to do with you and your kingdom and your king that will last forever. Father, please help us by your word and your spirit to really realise that and to live it. Uh, Father, thank you for the events of Easter, for the death, resurrection and ascension of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Thank you that because of that we have been born in you into a living hope that you have reserved for us, not that we deserve it, but you have reserved for us a place in your kingdom. 
Father, thank you so much for that. Please help that realisation to transform what we do during our weeks. For your sake, for the glory of your King, for the sake of your kingdom. It is in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.